Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. The threat of Russia invading Ukraine has dragged Ukraine's allies and NATO to the brink of war. The risk of conflict is real. NATO allies call on Russia to de-escalate, and any further aggression will come with a high cost for Moscow. That's Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, a military alliance of 30 countries, including Canada, the U.S., and much of Europe. On Monday, Britain said it's providing anti-tank weapons to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Canada sent Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, and Ukrainian officials urged our government to supply military equipment as well. On Wednesday, the U.S. also sent its Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and he warned that a Russian attack could happen on short notice. This, however, doesn't seem to be deterring Russia. So the question remains, is military action unavoidable at this point? I think from a Russian point of view, there's this unfortunate feeling that a conflict now, as terrible as that sounds, may be preferable to a conflict later. Mark McKinnon is a senior international correspondent at The Globe, and he's in Kyiv, reporting from what could turn into the front lines of a military conflict. This is The Decibel. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Manika. So, Mark, you've been in Kyiv for a few days now. Uh, we're talking on, on Wednesday morning, and this is a, a fast-moving story, so, so things are progressing. But does the city look or feel any different now from, from the many times that you've been there before? Unlike when I was here in December and people were not talking about the war, the flurry of diplomatic activity, these three meetings that took place last week in Geneva, Vienna, and Brussels, that's got the attention of Ukrainians. That's now leading newscast. The fact that this diplomacy failed. I think a lot of Ukrainians thought that something would come out of some sort of agreement would come out of the negotiations last week in Europe, and now that it's become, I think, clearer that what Russia is asking for is not something that NATO and the West are going to give it. If you ask people on the streets, are they thinking about the war? Yes, there's people are talking about what they'll do if a war starts. What have people been telling you then? What what will they do? Different people have different reactions in a situation like this. Of course, there are some who say they will stay and fight and, and, and defend their country's liberty and independence. And there are people who are spending their weekends now training outside of Kiev for, for conflict uh, and, and to fight. And some of those people are, are veterans of the conflict uh, that, that's already happened for the last eight years in Ukraine, the Donbass region. Other people say they're going to leave. I've had people asking me, how do you get to Canada? There's also around the city, they've, they've been telling people, here's the network of bomb shelters in Kyiv. You know, here's where you go if the siren uh, goes off. And there's an app where you can see what's the closest bomb shelter to you, which, you know, it is very real in a way that I think a month ago when I was here last, uh, all of this discussion was happening among sort of politicians and experts. And, and now ordinary people kind of know where the nearest bomb shelter is and are trying to figure out where they can immigrate to or what, what, if they qualify for refugee status elsewhere. So yeah, this conflict seems a lot a lot closer now than, than it did when we last talked to you about a month ago. Uh, and at that point, there were about 100,000 Russian troops within a short drive of the Ukrainian-Russian border there. What's changed with military deployments since that time? 
The interesting thing is, if you ask how many troops are near the Ukrainian border, we'd still be talking about this roughly the same number, 120,000 Russian troops within a short drive. What's happened since then, and over the last month, is military equipment has been brought across the country, some of it from as far east as Siberia, the Russian Far East, and is now being deployed close to the border. There's not yet the troops to operate that equipment, but that is something of a simple thing to take care of. You can fly in troops quite quickly or put them on trains quite quickly. Transporting uh, this type of military equipment that we're seeing coming across the country, that is the complicated part in terms of deploying things forward. So today, uh, Anthony Blinken in Kyiv said that he expected that it could quickly become 200,000 soldiers or more than that. Um, so the threat may, remains a real, even if it, that particular number hasn't changed very much. There's also some amassing of troops, it uh, sounds like, on the, the Belarus side. What's happening there? That's a very interesting move. Um, it allows, first of all, gives the possibility that Russian troops, if there is a, a, an incursion into Ukraine, could come from the north as well as from the east and from the south, from Crimea. More likely, this is about stabilizing Belarus. If there is some unrest in the country, as we've seen over the last year and a half, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be part of the invasion of Ukraine. It's, it's just a position that gives Russia options or at least sends a warning to the West not to get involved in Ukraine. From the people you've spoken to, Mark, what is their view on what Russia is doing here? They um, believe strongly that this isn't about Ukraine joining NATO or any of the things that are on the table right now. It is simply about Moscow wanting to control Kyiv, to control Ukraine. And with every passing year, Ukraine has been drifting further and further towards the West, not just in terms of its cooperation with NATO, which Russia is highlighting, but also in terms of its sort of just becoming more and more Western-leaning country. If you look at where President Zelensky visits, he's off, he's traveling to the West, he's visiting Western capitals, Western governments are supporting uh, institutions, the free press, the courts here, they're building a more and more Western society, and that makes it less and less like Russia, and, and, and less and less Russified, if you want to use that as a word. From a military point of view, the Russians say that actually this is a strategic threat to us. Uh, and they often bring up the Cuban Missile Crisis. They say, look, some of these facilities that NATO is constructing in Ukraine, they point to two ports in particular in the south of the country, these could be repurposed very quickly into NATO missile bases or have large American warships in them. When we did that during the Cold War, the, you know, we, we got to the brink of a nuclear conflict. And so they see this as you know, a red line that NATO, in their words, has already crossed and they say they're going to have this. They, they want to see the situation not just stop, but changed. Why is NATO's expansion eastward an issue for Russia now? Is there something about this, I guess, this time that's making Russia react to this? NATO's expansion has always been an issue for Russia. And ever, there's been five waves of expansion, some of them bigger than others, since the end of the Cold War. The alliance has grown from 16 countries to 30 over that time, and it's been growing to the east. You go back through the archives, and each time NATO expanded, the Russians were complaining about it. What's different here are a couple of things. From a strategic point of view, it just creates an enormously long border uh, that Russia would have to defend if they believed NATO was going to be here and if Ukraine was going to become a hostile state. The other thing that's changed, they see a moment here where Russia, they're strong enough, frankly, to invade Ukraine. The West is at a moment that they see uh, post-Afghanistan withdrawal of weakness. They don't detect a Western desire to fight. I think that remains in place today. So I think from a Russian point of view, there's this unfortunate feeling 
that a conflict now, as terrible as that sounds, may be preferable to a conflict later. Let's talk a little bit, I guess, about the diplomatic angle, because we've mentioned that there are a bunch of diplomats that have kind of um, come into to Kiev in the last in the last little while. There are talks between Russia and NATO and the U.S. that have happened uh, during this the second week of January. How did those talks go, Mark? And was there anything that was kind of agreed upon in those conversations? No, they they unfortunately hit a dead end and a, a very obvious one, which is um, Russia says that the starting point for the conversation has to be accepting its demand that Ukraine can never join NATO. The Americans and, and NATO rebutted with, we're not going to talk about that. We are willing to talk about these other things, including arms control agreements, uh, limitations on what kind of missiles can be put in Europe, you know, sort of agreements that frankly existed in the past, but both sides accused the other of breaking. The situation, you know, at all three meetings, the the, the language before if if it was optimistic at all, the language after the meetings was quite frustrated on both sides. Perhaps the biggest meeting yet is still ahead of us on Friday. They just announced yesterday that Anthony Blinken, who is now in Kiev, will on Friday meet back in Geneva with the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. And this is, you know, shy of a, a summit meeting between uh, Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. This is, you know, the most important diplomats in the room. That said, unless something dramatically changes, I, I think they'll just end up repeating their positions. And so that you know, may yet leave us right back where we are now. Let's go back to Russia's sticking point here, which is that they don't want Ukraine joining NATO. Other Soviet countries have have joined NATO over the years. Why is Ukraine's membership any different? You know, Ukraine has always had a special place in in Mr. Putin's heart in particular. He views the collapse of the entire Soviet Union as, as a calamity that he called it the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. But, you know, in his most recent writings, they've been very focused on Ukraine um, and, and the idea that this is a single country that, that's been divided by history, but unnaturally so. Um, and, and the idea of, you know, NATO being inside Ukraine is something that seems particularly and very personally intolerable for him. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's r- rumored where, where he took his where he took his honeymoon with his first wife. It was in Ukraine. So this is a country that he doesn't see as separate from Russia and that he regrets its independence and one that he um, has is making very clear he is unwilling to see um, become a Western state. And if we can, I guess, flip that question, why is is Ukraine so special to to NATO? Why is NATO risking war really to to protect Ukraine? And that's a really interesting question, because if you had, you know, if you shook Jen Stoltenberg awake in the middle of the night and said, is, is Ukraine going to join, Jen Stoltenberg being the NATO Secretary General, if you said, is Ukraine going to join NATO anytime soon? He would say no. There's no active plan for NATO to take Ukraine in. France and Germany in particular are opposed to Ukrainian membership and to Georgian membership because they, you know, they, they're worried about, you know, deepening the conflict with Russia. And I had an interview yesterday with the deputy prime minister of Ukraine, uh, Olga Stefanina, and I asked her a very similar question. I said, given the stakes here, wouldn't it be useful for Ukraine to admit that it's not joining NATO anytime soon, to perhaps take that off the table, say, like, we'll suspend our bid for NATO membership just to lower the temperature here? And she very fairly pointed out, listen, Russia occupies the Crimean Peninsula. It has troops in the Donbass region of Ukraine. We have two parts of our country which are out of our own control. You know, if we're going to talk about things that need to be done to de-escalate, those steps first. And if, you know, Russia returned Crimea and pulled it out of Donbass, 
yeah, we'd talk about, do we need to be in NATO? We could, we could, we could have a conversation. But as long as, from a Ukraine perspective, Russia's being so aggressive, suspending ties with the countries that are willing to give it support doesn't make any sense at all. And within NATO, there are countries, Canada, the United States, Britain, Britain being very uh, particularly forward on this point in recent days, that are providing support to Ukraine. And, and Ukraine's not going to cut off the friends it has right now. It sounds like Russia probably knows it's making demands that will not be met by drawing this line of not wanting uh, these discussions about Ukraine joining NATO, uh, to, to cut that off right there. What are experts on the region saying about why Russia would, would do this then? It's a maximalist position, um, one that suggests um, Russia may have already made up its mind about taking action against Ukraine. And the Russian negotiating position... Every smart person I've spoken to who is connected in any way to the Kremlin suggests that this is – they know this would be rejected. And it does suggest, along with these military movements we're seeing, suggests that we're going to go right to the very brink of war, if not into a war. It sounds like they've tried some diplomatic solutions here, but there's a bit of an impasse at this point. What solutions are on the table then, uh, if any, at this point? That, that's it. I mean, they're both – at this point, the useful – conversations have been few. You have the Russians saying, we demand this legal guarantee that Ukraine will never join NATO. We have the West saying the Russians must first withdraw, withdraw their troops from their border. And the Russians say, this is, you know, these are troops on their, on, in our country. And we're asking you about soldiers that have been, they're very, very far from Canada, the United States and Britain. We're asking you to pull those back. You know, like the, you can kind of see the Russian point of view from a, you know, from a risk board perspective. In terms of useful ways out of this, um, what seemed like the the steps that I thought might be possible, um, you know, both sides find reasons to step around them. Uh, you know, the idea of uh, Finlandizing Ukraine has come up in some corners. That that being a reference to sort of Finland being uh, a neutral state during the Cold War, Austria being another example of that. That that comes up. I, you know, I, I think that would be felt as a great desertion by the West of Ukraine and that you would see um, Russia's attempt to control Ukraine switch from military to political, economic, and maybe that's at this point an acceptable outcome. But, you know, a lot of Ukrainians, um, a lot of Western officials don't, you know, don't think that there should be any, any ground given to this behavior by Mr. Putin. And so we end up back in this, this standoff where both sides are telling the other one to back off. And if a military conflict should break out, what role might Canada play in all of this? I don't think Canada can or will have a role in any military conflict. Well, a direct role. We have the 200 soldiers here on a training mission. Yesterday, Melanie Jolie, the foreign minister, said these troops are going to stay. Uh, whether that would continue should active hostilities begin, that's an open question. The pressure for Canada to follow what the British have done and to send weapons, military equipment to Ukraine is already quite intense, uh, particularly from the large Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. I think that will grow uh, in the days ahead. Uh, and if there's a conflict, it will become it'll become quite a shout, actually, that, you know, if Canada is going to stand by and not join the conflict to show support for this government, for Ukrainian democracy, for 
everything we've, we've, we've Canada's invested millions and millions of dollars into various parts of the Ukrainian government, Ukrainian institutions over the last 20 years. I think there'd be a, a call for all that aid to be redirected to military aid. So there would be a lot of pressure like, to send things to Ukraine. Um, whether that will be possible the day after an assault begins is one question. Uh, whether you want to do what the British have done and, and start sending weapons in here and thereby sort of, to a certain extent, making Russia's point that NATO is arming Ukraine and this is intolerable is the other side of that question. Mark, from what you've seen, do you think there's a chance that there's a way out of this that doesn't involve any kind of military conflict here? This could all be a massive bluff by Mr. Putin. This could all be described as military exercises at the end of the day. I mean, until something happens, nothing's happened. And so... Yes, it's possible that, uh, you know, we saw in the spring this great big ramping up a similar sized Russian force, uh, a slightly not quite this uh, level of, of rhetoric, but something similar. And then we had the summit meeting between Mr. Biden and Mr. Putin that led to a de-escalation. So right now we're waiting for the West, NATO and the United States, whoever writes back to write back to Russia. It's supposed to be in a written form with its replies to Russia's big demands we're still waiting for that as of this minute. Um, maybe the West is going to make some great concession to Russia. Um, I don't sense a willingness in any of the Western capitals to do so. We saw in the last uh, 24 hours British military aircraft are landing here and, and dropping off anti-tank missiles like they think a war could begin in the morning. I don't sense diplomatic momentum right now. I sense military momentum on both sides, and that's really concerning. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this today. Thanks very much. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.